Okay, welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, two really interesting guests today. Uh, founder, uh, co-founders and CEO and COO of Chemical Watts, which is waste administration tracking software. Meredith Danberg-Ficarelli, Laura Rosenshine. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thanks for having us. So uh, this is, you know, your career path. You know, usually when you think about like sanitation, like Tony Soprano pops into your head, right? I mean, you are two, you know, young women uh, and clearly probably not from like a mobbed up background. Um, and here you are creating new technology and a new company in the, in the waste space. Why? Our, our careers are garbage. Okay. We're, we're proud of that. How, how, how did that happen? Um, we both found uh, waste management, the circular economy, you know, improving materials management through composting, through organics recycling. This idea that 33 plus percent of the waste stream in New York City is made up of potentially compostable materials, food, so fruits, vegetables, meat, bones, dairy, yard waste, leaves, twigs, sticks. It's the heaviest and wettest portion of the waste stream, the most expensive to transport, and composting it produces a valuable soil additive, um, compost, and our soils are degrading incredibly rapidly. And this is a cyclical system that's broken, and I think we both saw that and recognized I want to. I want to try to. I want to try to fix that. Okay. So, but but yes, sure. But you guys are two of hundreds of millions, if not billions, of people who are aware of the risks of climate change. You know, everyone says I want to do something about it, right? And that may mean like you tweet something or give a few bucks to something. But like you guys changed your entire lives and started a company, right? So, give me both, Laura, the kind of the what made you confident enough to do that? And then obviously nobody starts a company if they don't plan to make money doing so. And obviously I've, I've looked at your company and think it's, it's pretty fantastic. Um, what's, what's the model? The first company that we actually started was called Common Ground Compost. And when we, I started that company, I didn't think uh, I need to make a lot of money doing this. It just has to be sustainable. Right. Um, it was a small New York City-based company focused on dealing with small businesses that wanted to be more environmentally friendly with their operations. And I was starting to learn how to help businesses do that from the waste perspective. Because, right, we could tackle it from a number of different perspectives, but waste was my area of interest because um, composting was the foundation of that interest. So years later, um, when we realized that the scalable version of that um, couldn't be done with the way that we were doing it in consulting, um, we stumbled across an opportunity to start building a software. And that's when we first started realizing this is how we scale this. This is how we do this better. This is how we actually affect more change. Okay. So that, that means what? So when, when you, when you made the switch from sort of the services business to a software business, um, like what was the light bulb and why is it now that instead of sort of helping, you know, 10 companies figure something out, you guys could one day help a million companies. It was out. so many light bulbs. It's like a... String, it's a tsunami of lights. Of yeah. So what, walk me through the various light bulbs popping. I mean, I think the first one was recognizing that you can make operations easier for businesses by digitizing a lot of, of um, what's currently pen and paper or just in someone's brain, um, which is already happening across every industry. But waste management is taking its time to get there. 
Um, so that's number one. And then I think from there, that's really where you start to get the tsunami effect, where by digitizing workflows, you can start to gather better data. By having better data, you can start to inform potential change. Yeah. Um, and then by starting to understand what your options are, starting composting, you know, double-sided printing, whatever it might be, you start to have the opportunity to engage individuals around why should I give a fuck about this and, and how do I actually do it? What impact does it have and how do I talk to other people? And because everyone touches waste every single day, that's, I think, what, what made us um, step from just focusing on composting to focusing on businesses to recognizing that there's this massive scalable opportunity. Okay. All right, so let's make it a little more granular. That makes total sense. We're sitting in a, a retail outlet that I own, right? So I'm a small business owner. Um, and I just said, okay, guys, pitch me on why do I need Watts? What will allow me to do? And, you know, why, do, why is it necessary? Watts users right now are going to be businesses that have um, multi-site footprints. So yeah. ideally across multiple geographies, probably not a small business initially. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, they're facing some challenges that relate to um, needing to uh, comply with with changing regulations, um, needing to improve the transparency of their operations, both for from the consumer perspective and from the employee perspective and from the corporate governance perspective. And so what we're doing is bringing them software that helps them do that with trash, organizing their their flow, their operations, um, you know, increasing the ways that they can they can gather information and then report on it. And then ultimately, so they've got all this better information, tracking analytics, data, all, all the stuff that we kind of hear in the SaaS world generally. The trash that normally is going in either a blue container or a black container, what changes? Laura, you want to talk um, There are more containers. Okay. Um, that's the simple version of what we think of when we think of recycling and waste diversion. Um, but as time has gone on, at least over the last 20 years, we're starting to see more waste streams. And that's when the complexity increases, as well as businesses having third parties that help them operate their daily operations. So those two complexities are more of the reason of why we have to continue to digitize and make it easier for people to understand what they're being asked to do. So in your business right now, you might have every night you put out your trash, your recycling, and probably a bundle of cardboard. Mm -hmm. um, we should be adding to that. Let's add um, e-waste collection. Maybe not every day, but maybe every month. And that's what, like, use chargers and stuff? Yeah, I mean, when you guys throw away... Um, These mic stands that right, are, we're talking you're going about. To, yeah. We're going to recycle them. Um, and so you might have to call a specialty hauler that takes e-waste and then organize a pickup. But at the end of the day, when that 15 pounds of waste goes away, it's not going to the landfill. It's right. Going to and, it, and instead of me having to, like go through the yellow pages or whatever versus right. now and find the e-waste hauler. I'm just doing all of it through the software platform. That is the long-term goal. Absolutely. Right now, every business has to do every piece of better waste management themselves and figure it out um, for themselves. And it's a waste of time. Um, our years of consulting have given us a jumpstart into that insight. And so we can help guide businesses through these hurdles a lot faster. So oh, go ahead. electronics recycling is required in New York state. There's okay. a ban on disposal of landfill of uh, electronics to landfills. How so, many people comply with that? I mean, it's a little hard to tell. You aren't going to know that there's a charger or. Right. A I don't think I, like, I've never called an e-waste hauler. And I don't know. occasionally throw away a broken charger. Right. Which is put in the regular recycling technically bin. illegal. Right. And putting it in the regular recycling bin can be referred to as aspirational recycling or wish cycling. 
this idea that this thing should be recycled. I'm going to put it in my recycling. Maybe that'll happen. So, but let me, like, so even here in New York City, right, where if you polled, is climate change real and should we take drastic action, you get like 90 something percent yes. People are very cynical about recycling. People who, you know, really, I, I can't tell you how often I hear, like, ah, it all ends up in the same place anyway. This is all bullshit. Not that they don't think that it's theoretically a good thing. They just don't think that it actually happens. Is that true? Um, no, it's not true. Okay. <laughs> Let's be clear about that. In New York City and in a lot of municipalities, we have um, we approach waste differently, whether it's the residential sector or the commercial sector. In New York City, the residential sector is, has an incredibly robust and responsible recycling program. You can tell that by knowing that when you put your waste out on the street, you have to put it out in separate streams, in separate piles, and different trucks collect that material. That is a clear indication that those materials are very, very likely going to different places. On the commercial side, it is much more mysterious. Collection happens at night, there are less rules, there's less enforcement, um, and the contracts are less robust from a city contract to a, just a relationship between a business and a hauler, yep. much less transparent. So on the commercial side, I would say that it's much more challenging and hard to ensure that it's happening, but there are haulers out there that are doing it and there are ways that you can ensure and persist so that they continue to do the right thing. And the infrastructure is there. Um, we, you know, when the, the haulers are the middleman between who's generating the waste, the business or the building, and where that material ends up to then get sorted. Um, recycling facilities exist. They, they are functioning, they're being invested in, um, which you know, kind of points to the fact that, the, that infrastructure is growing. We also have um, regulatory measures, um, extended producer responsibility, most specifically, or EPR, which is this idea that brands pay in to um, uh, funds that start to build more infrastructure. Um, and I think that's going to, uh, it's going to change perspective. Uh, yeah. It's going to change perception um, because we learn everything we know from brands. They're going to tell us about it. But we're also not surprised. Like we tell people recycling is hard. It shouldn't be hard, but it is hard. And it's hard because it's so localized. What you do in your home might be different than what we do in the building that we're sitting in right now. So that quick change of rules causes confusion. So we can't fix the um, the way that the infrastructure is set up, it, it should be a local economy, right. but we can fix the way that people are educated and understand what they're supposed to right. do. And you guys, I assume, are kind of now running into sort of the, the sad reality that those of us in government often sort of know, which is like a city council passes a law saying, okay, you have to do this. And then in their mind, we solved the problem, right? We passed the law. And then of course, like, you know, I'm involved in local politics. I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to throw the, the charger in the recycling bin. So... How did you go from that sort of a little bit of cognitive dissonance of kind of, yes, there's a good law on the books, the problem is still exactly the same problem as it was before, to fixing it? Well, I want to plug New York City's um, City Council for passing the New York City Zero Waste Act yep. yesterday. Um, so organics recycling is going to be mandated in New York City for residents by the end of 2024. Um, yeah, cognitive dissonance. I, you know, I think part of it is um, having participated in some of the legislative development process uh, in New York City over the last decade, seeing how slowly things move, um, but also understanding that part of it really is sitting and explaining something to someone, um, trying to get trying to get that word out. For us, it's about recognizing the, the potential scale um, and seeing kind of 
leaning on what you said, Bradley, that 90 plus percent of people, especially in New York City, are going to tell you that they want to do something about climate change and that they're cynical about trash and recycling. They don't yeah. believe that it's happening. Right. Right. What we see is an opportunity to open the curtain, pull back the curtain and show people um, maybe this system over here is broken. This one's working. Let's fix that one. Right. Where there is no, because it's it's funny. That was my next question, which is like, okay, I put things either, like I said, in, in the blue bin or the black bin, and I never really think about it again. Um, where does it go? Like, so let's use New York. Is it going to China? Is it going to Staten Island? I don't feel like I see those trash barges on the East River as much as I used to. What, what actually happens? The barges are still there. Okay. Um, so, they did, they've increased, actually. Yeah. Got it. So I've just barging, been unlucky. Barging is, yeah. um, for a number of reasons, uh, put in air quotes, but better than moving material by uh, truck. So, you know, it's a, it's a good option. Um, okay, so New York City has rules around their recyclables remaining domestic um, for the residential sector. On the commercial sector, they're probably leaving the United States. Um, why, why would anyone care? Why would they have a rule requirement? Do we need that? Like, is it critical materials that we need for the economy? I think New York City, I, do you know why New York City specifically passed that? I mean, the the, I, the theory is this idea that we're, you know, um, made in America, trying to support our local economy um, rather than shipping materials and having them end up on someone else's doorstep, which is a big problem. Yeah. Um, you know, and the tracking of materials um, in North America is, is um, arguably a bit more um, transparent than it is once something leaves the country's borders. Um, but, you know, you ask where it's going. Uh, there are commodities markets for all of these materials, every plastic, every different type of paper, and complex and constantly changing. Um, and what we're starting to see, even in supply chain and production, is reshoring of, of manufacturing. That's leading to an increasing demand for recovered materials domestically. And that tied with that the legislation that I mentioned earlier, extended producer responsibility, that's part of this tidal wave that we're talking about, um, of these kind of interconnected systems that are starting to build. And so does, does the economic benefit of recycling meaningfully outweigh what it would cost to instead just dump everything in a landfill? Depends on where you are. So Northeast, we have limited land. It's incredibly expensive to landfill in New York City. Our waste in New York City travels 800 plus miles to get to the landfill where it's going, or it gets incinerated in someone's community in New Jersey. Um, you know, depending on where you are in the middle of the country, there, you know, it's a lot cheaper to, to landfill. Not that it's not increasing in cost. But in theory, yeah, right, this is the direction we have to go in, that it has to be um, more economical to take a product break it down yeah. and remake a new product and sell it again than to just put it in a hole and never think right. about it again. So where would you say we are right now in that scale, Laura, and where do you think we kind of get to? Um, where are we now from where do we get to? I just want to say you mentioned product, like being able to break down a product easily and make something new. Um, product design is a piece of this too. And that's where some of this legislation is pointing the idea that products need to be made better so that they can be, the materials within them can be recovered. And I would say, where are we now is, um, I mean, I'm a crazy person about trash. So like when I look at a product, I look to see if there's recycled you just content. See trash. Yeah. Oh my God. I see trash everywhere. <laughs> I, I hear garbage trucks before they come. I'm, I just took you have like a six set, like what's the they break their, break their arm and they know it's going to rain. Like, you know, when the truck's going to come. That's pretty much right. Yeah. Um, I just took a trip to Amsterdam and I have about an equal number of touristy pictures as I do of trashy pictures. 
just because learning from other cultures is, is incredibly important. Do they do their trash differently? They do. They actually, for the most part, they actually containerize it and put it underground. So there's a small bin mm -hmm. at the surface, and then there's a huge bin underground. And then the garbage truck is actually a crane that picks up the whole block out of the, out of the sidewalk, picks it above the garbage truck, empties it, and it puts it back down on the ground. And what it does is it is entirely rat-proof. Yeah, I was about to say, considering one, the effort, at least here in New York, to try to get rid of the, the rats, it seems like a better solution. It's a better solution. It is a much smaller city. Yes. And so um, that can be challenged. But as I was saying, the um, products, saying that they have recycled content in them, that is not, I wouldn't have said, we wouldn't have seen that three or four years ago as much as we are seeing it now. So we are going in the right direction. So it's a circle, right? In order for the company to make a product that has recycled content in it, there has to be product going to the recycling facility. It has to yeah. get into that blue bin in the first place. And I think that, that the drive for that cycle is going to increase with passing legislation. And But it also actually has kind of started from businesses doing it themselves because they know that sustainability is something they have to start to address. And this is a small piece of how they can start to do it. And do you think they're addressing it? And the answer is probably all of the above, but for moral reasons, because from a brand ESG perspective, consumers now care about this or to be compliant with regulations? Yes. All three. <laughs> uh, How would you rank them? Mostly the former. Um, I'd say, depending on the company, it's either one or two, and then enforcement is last in most cases. Because enforcement right now is so right. lax. So if in some places, California is ahead of the curve. And then does that then change if you had to just rank the three for California, exactly. would you use a different ranking? Yeah. So yeah. enforcement, if it does happen, is the most effective mechanism here? It's hard to say. I mean, there are just some, I mean, think about the company like Patagonia, like they right. are just entirely different beasts. And then you think about a company that just doesn't tap sustainability at all. So you can't rank them. Yeah, yeah. depends on who they are. Yeah. So Meredith, you mentioned, and Laura, you just kind of alluded to it, the circular economy earlier. Uh, really interesting concept. We've kind of danced around it a little bit. Can you just explicitly explain what is the circular economy? And if you can, pick an example, like a shirt or something, because that, that's, that was the example I had heard when I learned about it, and it helps really crystallize it. Yeah. So our current economy is linear. We mine natural materials. We extract things from the earth and from people. We make things um, we use those things, and then we discard pieces or all of those things once we're done with them. Linear system, the discard destination is a landfill, an incinerator, the ocean, the sidewalk. In a circular economy, materials are designed better. So products are actually designed so that they can then be broken down and so that their core components can be reintegrated into a materials economy. Um, and so think about I I Ikea furniture is actually the, the thing that's coming to mind. Ikea, maybe not the brand, but furniture in general, this idea that I can go to a store, I can buy a whatever side table. And when I'm done with it, there's a place in near me, accessible to me, where I can bring that thing and either someone else can come buy it, someone else can come pick it up because it, it still works or whatever, my dog ran into it, it broke. Someone can either repair it, get it back to me, ideally, or it can be taken apart and those core components can either be made into something new or, you know, they can, uh, you know, be basically broken back down into fibers and made into paper or something like that. Do you have a better example? <laughs> no, no, it's perfect, right? The, you know, we don't want to go from A to Z. We want to go to A to Z and then back to A back again. To a again. Yeah. yeah. And do you think, I mean, I feel like that's a concept that is it 
not particularly well understood right now? Or is it just that there's almost a generational divide where like, like my daughter who's 16 only shops at thrift stores, right? So like definitionally, she kind of on some level gets the notion of the circular and supports the circular economy. Do you feel like it is a kind of a concept that's much better just intuited and understood by younger people? Natural systems are circular. So, you know, I think um, we society has done a great job of breaking natural systems. Yeah. Um, it's not obvious to most people because if you just live your life, you walk from, you know, home to work or whatever it is, um, you don't have to think about it. So yeah, I do think there's a bit of kind of an emergence of a new perspective. Um, so it, it seems to me from a very macro standpoint, it almost feels like we're in a race to save ourselves before we destroy ourselves, right? Because you can kind of look at the news every day. And if you want to say just the world's coming to an end based on climate, you can in probably 10 other ways too. But based on climate, obviously this, this week with the wildfires from Canada, clearly you can feel that way. But then also you see all of the different efforts, whether it's, you know, technology around kind of waste of composting like you guys are doing or carbon capture plants that maybe don't work quite today, but but hopefully will in five or 10 years. If you had to bet overall, like, do we save ourselves before we kill ourselves? And how much damage do we have to do until we get to the right side of that? Like, what's your guess? Well, we're doing a great job on the damage front. Yes doing a really good job there um how fucked are we is the question mm -hmm. um i guess so and how confident are you that people like you guys ultimately can save the day well we're, we're pretty fucked um I, I i see a groundswell we wouldn't still be doing this if there if there wasn't something in it for yeah. us um you know i think people really want to engage they just are so beat down um and so i think it's going to be really hard um, I did on the question about kind of the circular economy and this question of whether people are, are ready to engage or not. And um, I think it's, it's about access and information. Right now, most people can't access composting. Most people don't know that it's illegal to discard their electronics in the trash, nor would they have a place to put them even if they did know. And so I think that's the, the key here of like responding to the fuckedness of where we are right now. Um, is yeah having better systems yeah i would say better systems. in short for me i tend to think that we're beyond saving ourselves um but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try and right. fight like hell so and when we're beyond saving ourselves so that means like assuming we're not fit, and your point is in human extinction but more that just there's going to be a lot of bad shit that happens to a lot of people because there's already of a lot done. of bad right. shit right happening. Yeah. like where's the is where's the tipping point is it like we're for the next 30 years, it's going to be this way? Like, are we, is there ever a point where, let's say, carbon capture does work that we're taking enough carbon out of the atmosphere that we're actually now in better shape than we were 25 years ago? That's a pretty sciencey question. I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm well, educated well enough to answer I that. I think it's like carbon capture needs to be part of the solution, yeah. but so many things need to be fixed underneath it, like at the foundation. Give me your top five. Um, I mean, materials reclamation is really important, but I'm talking housing development, food systems, you know, we're, we're talking about um, access to education, uh, you know, maternal health. I mean, deforestation. So here's where I, as someone who's sort of spent a career in politics, get nervous when I hear that, which is that sounds really smart. That's probably true. It 
in my experience, becomes the excuse for why nothing ever gets yeah, done. But like, you know, if, if you go, if you ask people in the school system, usually why are your results so bad? Well, until you fix poverty, you can't fix education, right? And it's just always this sort of circular, different types of talking about kind of logic where everyone can point the finger at somebody else and nothing changes. So give me like five things that right now, if I made the two of you king of the world from an environmental standpoint that you would just mandate and do. System standpoint, not just environmental. System standpoint. <laughs> well, right, but I guess he, he, sure, but that's too easy. No, but like, no, no. I'm going to fix all the problems in housing and food. I mean, give me things that like organics or cycling could happen. Number one. Okay. Yeah. Everybody has access to organic recycling, and there's infrastructure to be able to process all that material okay. so yep. that we can put compost back in the soil. Like the issues with deforestation are pretty massive. Okay. So, to have what's the solution to that? Seaweed farming instead of soy. So using okay. sugar kelp instead of soy in 95% of the products that soy is currently using. And is that like happening? Is Aqua there cool culture. shit happening in labs tons right now that cool, we don't know about? Not in labs, in the ocean. Tons, okay. of, tons of cool shit happening with shellfish farming tied with seaweed farming. And, and using that also as a coastal resiliency practice uh, because it reduces um, the impact of storm surge. What else? Any more? Yeah. No, we don't. I, I won't make you do five. It's, it's, no, we, we could, that's a <laughs> long conversation. We also have a lot of editing capability <laughs> here, so we can fix this. You know, we re renewable, like localized, decentralized um, energy infrastructure and grid, grid uh -huh. capacity, yep. right? So yeah, energy sure. storage. Um, I learned about um, gravity batteries recently of like repurposing mines to be able to store. Right. Um, energy just using gravity, like that kind of shit, right? Yeah, or did you see the thing where they could potentially create energy out of humidity? Yeah, yeah totally. That Great. Was I mean, my preference is probably almost always going to be for the technology solution that is using as much existing infrastructure as possible yeah. and is is like the least, you said that's a very science-y question. Um, you know, I love science, but I think the, the simplest things are sometimes the best answers. Yeah. Um, all right, so let me pivot then. We're going to stay within your world, but, but the last question a little different, which is you both describe yourself as garbage nerds, right? Which I think is not, you know, many people, right, who do that. So you're two, like, seemingly normal people, right? Like, if you walk past each other on the street, I wouldn't be like, there's something strange about her. Um, and yet you have this deep passion for this thing that's both part of all of our lives and yet something that we almost willfully ignore in many ways. So what's it? Like, you're at a dinner party, whatever it is, like, what's your thing? You're like, I'm all about garbage. Like, how, do the, how does the person next to you react? You're so excited. I actually just texted someone on the way here because I'm going to a party this weekend, and I said, I actually travel with a compost bucket now. <laughs> so if you would like to start capturing your food waste, I will make it disappear all weekend. Um, Bring it home with me in the trunk. And right, and then put it in New York bin. City's brown right. bin because I know that I have access to it here. Um, but your question is, what is it like? I, I mean, at this point, our friends and family, like, just know this, obviously, right. about us. Um, and all of the questions get asked, where does this go? Where does this go? Why is this like this? Is recycling real? Why should I care? Uh, what's the worst material? Is our compostable products real? Um, they are. Keep going. <laughs> um, but I don't think that it's, um, like, it's never ending. Right. Like the options for people always change. Like even at my parents' house, like the recycling system changed. So now we have to like talk about it again. Um, so it's a constant, a constant flow of questions. And, and so you're like the, the expert that everyone's it's kind of like everyone wishes that they, they have like a family member who's a doctor. So they can just be like, my toe hurts. And then like they have to talk to you about it. That's you're like the right. doctor for garbage. I get text messages probably weekly 
from like random people, not always the Zanos. Like, you know, can I, what do I do with this thing? Generally, I point them to their municipality's website. There are 9,000 different municipal recycling. Yeah, let's say, how much would be improved simply if there was like one portal for the country that, that had very clear and concise language on it? It's a great question. I think that on the residential side, that is happening. There are nonprofits that are making this easy. There are apps out there that connect to municipalities so that someone could be like, what's my trash collection schedule? What materials go where? How much am I paying for it? That we see happening. Mm -hmm. On the commercial side, it is a much different story because we're not beholden to the municipality. We're beholden to the individual waste haulers. So the wild, wild west of New York, (laughs) um, there are over 90 commercial waste haulers that a business could choose, a, a normal small business could choose from to do waste management with. But on the residential side, we don't have a choice. We just have one. This concept of um, franchising waste on the commercial side, mm-hmm. um, there are about four or five cities that have done it. San Francisco is the most notable. In San Francisco, one truck goes down and hits the residential and the commercial businesses on each street, and they have required waste streams, and they're consistent. The materials that go in them are consistent. In New York City, we don't have that. We've actually passed legislation to get there. Yep. It hasn't gone into an effect yet. Cool. Um, how do people learn more about Watts? GetWatts.com is our website. G-E-T. Is that the best way to contact you guys? Um, you can find us on LinkedIn, but we're you know we're generally around. Yeah, they're they're responsive in my experience. Yeah, uh, pretty responsive. Especially if you text them like, "What do I do with this like piece of cardboard?" <laughs> like I, sometimes like two a.m. I'll just start texting them that kind of stuff. They're, they get better right back to me. To um, create a text hotline. Exactly. Yeah. All right, Meredith Danberg for Grayley, Laura Rochelle. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me.